Father, we come to you today and we just ask for your presence and your power to be with us. We ask for you to make yourself known, to manifest yourself in our hearts and our lives. In this room, in about 4,500 square feet of room, God, would you just be here and be with us? And I pray for hearts, God. I pray for our hearts that, are, that would be open to you, that would be open to the truth as we're going to dive into something really, really hard today. I, I pray that you would allow us to have hearts that are, that are open, not hearts like the Israelites. They're always hard. Uh, but hearts that are that are open to you and to what you want to do in us. So God, we ask for your blessing and for your favor. And we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Well, for the summer, we have been diving into a series that we're calling Hurting Out Loud, where we're trying to create a space and a place for us as believers to hurt out loud, to the pain that we're going through, the hurt that we face, to actually vocalize that, to tell God that, to vocalize it to God, and then to be able to vocalize it to one another. Because most of us, uh, rather than express our hurt, we suppress our hurt. And what we look at, when we, when we look at the Psalms, we see a people that are, that are, are continuously vocalizing their hurt and their pain to God. They're telling God and they're telling the community. And as, as we know, the book of Psalms, it was, it was the hymn book for God's people. These were songs that people would have sung on a regular basis whenever they gathered together in the assembly of God's people. They would have opened the Psalms. They would have opened the scroll and they would have scrolled down and they would have sung together. They would have sung these songs out loud. And they're songs that are expressing themselves to God. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says this. He says, it's easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It's somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. And we're trying to take our hurts and our struggles and our pain, which we all go through or all will go through, and be able to vocalize that to God. And so for the summer, up to this point, we have primarily walked through what it looks like to hurt out loud on an individual level for our own individual internal pain that we wrestle with, the personal hurt that we've experienced and taking that to God. But as of last week with Pastor Clayton's sermon, which he's been doing a bang up job in our series so far, um, we're now making a shift and we're looking at Psalms of Lament where God, we see God and his people hurting for pain in a broader sense not just on an individual, internal, personal level, but on an external, outside level, on a grander level. And when we look at the Psalms, when we look throughout the Psalms, many of the Psalms of lament are written about bigger issues and bigger problems and bigger situations that not only impact yourself, but many people. And essentially, the lament is provoked by a larger issue surrounding them in a broader context. So today, the title of my sermon is Lament Over the City. And David, in this Psalm 55, he, he descriptively uh, tells us what is happening in his city, what's going on around him, and he's lamenting to God over not just something that is personal to him, but something that is huge on a grand scale that is a city-wide issue, and he's taking his pain, and he's taking his hurt, and he's lamenting before God. And this is what he says. He begins this way in Psalm 55, verse 1. He says this, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not your face from my plea for mercy. You ever been in a tough situation and you feel like God was a million miles away? You ever gone through something in your life that was hard, that was challenging, that was frustrating, maybe maritally, maybe financially, maybe re relationally, maybe vocationally, and it just feels like God isn't anywhere close? 
And David feels like that sometimes. And he says, God, give ear to my prayer. Don't hide yourself from my plea for mercy. Verse 2, attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. David is pleading to God. He's desperate. He's longing for mercy. He tells us that he's, he's restless. It means he's in a situation, whatever is happening to him is so hurtful that he, he's restless. It's significant. I imagine he can't keep his mind off of it. I imagine he has a hard time sleeping at night. This is something that's bothering him. You ever had a hard time going to sleep because of something that was bothering you? Something that was going on in your mind that you just couldn't get off your mind no matter what you did. It seemed like you couldn't escape from it. And David feels like the situation that he is in is completely inescapable. And then he tells us why. He tells us the reason in verse 3. He says this, because of the noise of the enemy. And then he gives us a description of who that is. Because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and a horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Ever felt like that? It felt like you're in a situation where just get me out of this. If I only, if I could just fly away and get out of the situation. Verse 7, yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. David is completely distraught and devastated over what he is experiencing around him, what he refers to as the oppression of the wicked, his enemy. Now, here's what oppression is. Oppression is the state of being subject to unjust treatment or control. The state of being subject to unjust unjust treatment or control. And the concept of oppression that David mentions here, and he mentions many places elsewhere, the concept of oppression and justice and injustice is a significant theme throughout the entire Bible, particularly in the Psalms. The word oppression in my version is, is mentioned 15 times in the Psalms. The word justice is mentioned 17 times in the Psalms. And I'll just acknowledge, whenever we start to to talk about words like oppression and justice and injustice, people are all over the map, which makes my job impossible. I mean, like people are all all over the map about exactly what it means. What are we talking about? What do we we mean here? And so here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to clarify for us briefly what uh, justice is and what David is meaning here. Justice means right or proper judgment and treatment in a situation. Justice, it means right judgment proper judgment and right treatment in a situation. It's establishing what's right as well as maintaining what's right for all people in all circumstances. And I think when many of us hear justice or initially think about justice, I think most of us probably think about justice in a punitive sense, like justice as punishment for a crime. So if you break the law, then justice will be served. And uh, and that is That is justice. Justice is punitive, but that's only a small slice of the pie for what justice means. Justice is not only punitive, it's also equitable. Equity means restoring what's right to those who are victims of wrongdoing. It's making sure that all people are treated without partiality. 
And so justice, just to be clear, in the scriptures, biblical justice is not only justice in a punitive sense, it's also justice in an equitable sense. So here are a few passages I'll I'll read for you in the Psalms about oppression and injustice. Psalm 9-7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, which means the bedrock foundation of God's rule and reign, his throne is a throne of justice, central to what it means to know God is to know justice. Psalm 99-4 says this, the king, this is God, the king in his might, loves justice, like God loves it. You, God, have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Psalm 103.6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 146.7, God executes justice for the oppressed. And then other places, I'll mention a couple, Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then in the New Testament, we see this in the New Testament, specifically in in Jesus. And Jesus over and over again is condemning those who aren't acting in a just way. He says this in Matthew 23, 23. He says this to the pastors and they didn't like it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's a pretty huge blow for Jesus to say, guys, you are too concerned with your to-do list about religion. What you need to be concerned about are the weightier matters of the law of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Here, here's, here's how I'll say it. Justice is a defining mark of the kingdom of God. Justice is a defining mark of the kingdom of God. There's just like no way around it. I mean, unless you want to get a razor blade out and start cutting out verses, I mean, there's just absolutely no way to to get around this. Now, we have to ask why is justice a defining mark of the kingdom of God? Well, throughout the Bible, uh, the concept of justice requires God's people to operate in a way that's really completely foreign to the way of the world. It's the way of God's people. It's, it's foreign. It's counterintuitive. It's contradictory to the way of the world. Unlike the world, God's people are expected to feed the poor. God's people are expected to give their employees a fair wage. God's people are expected to treat their neighbor as they would treat themselves. All over Scripture, God expects his people to welcome the foreigner and refugee into their very own home and other principles of, of justice. It's defining mark of God's people. It's an absolute defining mark of who God is and what he expects his people to be. I love the way that Bruce Waltke says it. He's an Old Testament scholar. I love this quote. He says this, the righteous, this is God's community, God's people. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that only God's people have the ability to do good things. It doesn't mean that only God's people have the uh, ability to, to show good to other people. There's people all over the world, regardless of what their spirituality is, regardless of what their religion is, that have the ability to do good things. What he is saying is that inherent in the kingdom of God is a principle that we, as God's people, intentionally and specifically disadvantage ourselves for the advantagement of others. 
It's inherent in what it means to know God and to follow God and to live for God. And it's such a significant issue to God that Jesus even uses justice as the litmus test to demonstrate the people who truly know God and understand his kingdom. This will absolutely blow you away. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says this. Then he will say to those on his left, talking about the end judgment at the end of time, Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, refugee, foreigner, and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will, also, they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus uses his litmus test to determine whether or not you actually understand the heart of God and God's kingdom is how you treat other people is how you treat not only other people, but those who are the least of these, those who are at the bottom. Now, I'll go ahead and just acknowledge that this is incredibly challenging uh, to, to navigate. I actually had the sermon written on Wednesday and felt like it wasn't that good, felt like it was a little subpar, prayed about it and rewrote it later in the week because of how challenging this is. See, in America, in our culture right now, there, there exists, uh, you could say, a false dichotomy of two options that you have to pick if you want to be a Christian or if you want to be a, a church. These exist within Christianity. You're either a liberal church or you are a conservative church. You're either conservative and all about truth and doctrine and converting people, or you are a liberal church and all about grace and love and helping people who are in need. This is one of the things that is so confusing uh, for many people who come to uh, the bridge. Uh, literally, some people come here and think that we're flaming liberals, and some people come here on the same day and think that we are bigoted conservatives. I mean, my job is impossible. And we don't fit into a nice, neat little box. And I promise you, it would be way easier to just fit into a little box. Timothy Keller, he, he says this about the false dichotomy. He says this, many people have a driving impulse to place every church somewhere on the ideological spectrum from liberal left wing to conservative right wing. But the gospel makes a church impossible to categorize in this way. For it brings both deep, powerful changes that convert people from their sin and deep, or and deep, powerful social changes as well. Rather than emphasizing mainly evangelism or mainly social justice, we intentionally set out to give a very high emphasis to both, employing a holistic approach that connects the people in our church to the city through both evangelistic proclamation and ministries of justice and mercy. And this is what Jesus demonstrated so beautifully. John 1 tells us that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. Simultaneously, at the same time, he was overflowing with grace and love and mercy for people, but also fully overflowing with truth and what's right and what is wrong. And Jesus lived this out. And so this means, this means we will be a church that is robustly, ro robustly doctrinally driven. 
like strong on, on, on doctrine of what God says for us in his scriptures, but we will also be robust, I can't even say that word today, robustly socially driven because the gospel calls us to both. And anything, and anything less is a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit because justice is absolutely core. It's a defining mark of God's kingdom. And then David, he goes on and he says this in verse 9. He says, this is crazy. He says to God, destroy, O Lord, speaking of his enemies. Divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. David literally tells God about the oppressors. He says to destroy them. Like David's response to God about the oppression that he sees around them is to destroy them. The Hebrew word here, it means to swallow them up. David is commanding God to swallow up the oppressor, to destroy him, to annihilate and wipe him off the face of the earth. Like, we don't, we don't teach Sunday school stories like that, you know. We don't, we don't have, like, flannel graphs in uh, Sunday school and in Bridge Kids for that, you know. Hey, children, this is what you need. We're going to read Psalm 55 today. This is what it says. God, destroy the enemy. Like, we, we, don't, we kind of bypass those stories in Sunday school for some reason. I mean, David is, at, he, David is like out of his mind. I mean, I mean, he is so indignant. He is, he's freaking out. He's asking for God to completely destroy the oppressed. That's how he feels about it. That's how, what his, that's how he feels about his hurt. That's how he feels about his pain. That's how he feels about people that are taken, being taken advantage of. And earlier we see, he says, my heart is in anguish. I have fear, trembling. He uses the word horror. This is, this is righteous indignation. This is righteous disgust that David has over the things that he is seeing around him. Here's, here's what that means. God's people should be outraged by injustice. God's people, if you name the name of Christ, if you consider yourself in the assembly of God's people, we have to be outraged by injustice. David isn't just slightly upset. He is furious. He is devastated and angry over the way that the powerful are taking advantage of the weak in his city. Reminds me of uh, something that happened yesterday. Yesterday, I was uh, with our community group, and our community group, uh, you know, we kind of shift gears for the summer. We don't meet every week, but we got together uh, yesterday at one of, uh, one of our friend's house that has a house on the lake about an hour from here. So we got to go to the lake house. It was tons of fun. Uh, we p- played uh, King of the Float, and I won. It was, it, was a, it, was a great, it was a great day. I just, com- the kids had no chance. I mean, I was just completely <laughs> knocking them off. Like, it was, it was awesome. I, I won fair, fair and square. Um, but while, while we were there, my back's a little sore today. I'm kind of going to got to hurt and I'm getting becoming an old man up here. Um, but uh, while we were while we were there, one, one of the people in our community group they, they told us a, a story about recently when they were trying to get on uh, a plane and like just it's crazy what happened. So um, this this girl in our community group she needed to to fly. I believe that she needed to go see some some family, and so she was gonna have to go go online, buy a plane ticket, get there, do the whole deal. It was gonna be hard. It was gonna be last minute. She looks up flights. It's like seven hundred dollars for a flight. You ever done that? 
you like pull it and you're like, oh, $700. You're like, $700 for a, a flight. And so she's like, but I got to go. I got to see these people. So she buys, um, she buys the flight, uh, gets all her stuff together, hurries, gets to the airport, does the deal, checks in, security, the whole thing. And she gets to the gate and she's standing at the gate. And the person, the lady at the gate says, I'm sorry, but the plane is full. We've given your seat away. And she's like, what are you talking about? I've got a ticket. She's holding it in her face. I spent $700 to get on this plane, and you're telling me that I can't get on. And the lady's like, I'm sorry, there isn't anything that we can do. Uh, the plane is completely full. We're not going to ask anybody. That you're just going to have to wait to a later flight, perhaps a later day. And she's like, no, you will not. I am getting on this plane. She ends up not getting on the plane. But she was completely outraged over that situation. Why? Because injustice had been done against her. And she was mad. She was, she was furious. She was outraged about that situation. And here's the reality. All of us have the ability to be outraged. And all of us get outraged about things. But here's the question. What do we get outraged about? I look at, I look at my life. You peer into my life on a weekly basis. And I don't, really, I don't really get outraged about things that don't affect me. I don't get outraged about things that don't impact me. See it on the news, read it in the newspaper. It happened to them, it happened out there, whatever. That isn't me. I'm concerned about my own little kingdom and my own little family. But David doesn't have that option. David looks at what's happening around him, and he is angry. He is angry. He, he, is, he, is, mad. he is outraged over the situation. And some of you are like, well, Ethan, this is New Testament grace. We shouldn't be angry um, because we need to be gracious. And we do. We, need, we do. But here, here's the reality. God has anger. Like in the very nature of God is to be angry about the things that are opposed to him and against his people. So, for instance, Psalm 7 verse 11 says this. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. Like he, he, he's angry. He, like, and he isn't in sin. Anger isn't sin. Righteous anger is appropriate, and God demonstrates that. Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 6 says this, Who can stand before his indignation, speaking of God? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. That's not like a cute, cuddly little Sunday school God, you know. That is like a robust God that is concerned about his creation, that is concerned about his people. And we have, to, we have to recognize that God is a God of overwhelming grace and generosity and love and mercy and affection for you and me. You don't even have the ability, I don't even have the ability to even comprehend the degree of God's love and his favor towards you and me. I don't, I don't even have a concept for it. It is that great. But here, here, here's the reality as well. I don't have the ability to comprehend the anger and the fierce wrath of God against the wicked and those who are oppressing people that he has created in his own image. It's both and. We can't have a lopsided God or we can't have a God that we like or that we agree with. God is who he is and we have to recognize who he is and then live in accordance to that and live what he has called us to. When is the last time that you were outraged by injustice. When is the last time that you were angry over the oppression around you? When? Can you even remember? Can you even think about a time where you were 
mad because of injustice. See, this is why some of your friends freak out on Facebook whenever there is an injustice. Now, please don't hear me trying to validate everyone who freaks out on Facebook. (laughs) Sometimes I wish Facebook would have never been created in the first place. But there is... That's not, that's, not, that's not even a Bible verse. I got amens, and that's not even like a Bible verse. Okay. But there is a place for being outraged over injustice. It's biblical to be outraged. David does it. God does it. And when your friend is lamenting, perhaps on Facebook, over injustice, maybe it would be a good idea to actually reach out to them and have a conversation to ask what they are so wrecked about. Because I promise you, if, if David was on Facebook, you would be freaking out. He'd be like, I don't think he should have posted that right there. I don't think, I don't think he, sh- I don't think he should, have, should have said that is not acceptable for the Christian community. He should not be acting like that. This is David for crying out loud. And he is outraged over what he is seeing around him. He is completely outraged. Now, just in full disclosure, I haven't always been of this mindset either, and it is still a work in progress for me. I grew up in typical uh, white suburbia. I grew up going to church, the ultimate smells and bells, Baptist church. It's what I was used to. That's how I grew up. Um, I, would, I would qualify myself in the way that I grew up. I would have called, or you could have called me a judgmental moralist. My perspective was that people get what's coming to them. Well, if they're poor, if they're criminal, whatever, they should have done better, a better job like me. They should have made a better life decision. They should have picked themselves up by their own bootstraps. I had no concept for inequality or any kind of inequality, racial, economic, gender, you, you name it. Eugene Peterson, he, he says this about who I was. Deep down, the moralist suspects that there are no, at least not very many, real victims. People get what is coming to them. In the long run, people reap what they sow, the rape victim, the unemployed, the emotionally ill, the prisoner, the refugee. If we were privy to all the details, we would see that, in fact, they asked for it. But the Psalms will have none of this. The Psalms assume a moral structure to life, but their main work is not to train us in judgmental moralism, but to grapple with evil. See, the turning point for me was back in 2012, when I had a conversation unlike any other conversation I ever had. For the first time in my life, I had a conversation with someone who was not only a Christian, but a Christian of a different ethnicity, of a different political persuasion than I was, and who had a different church background than me. And I loved him. He was a friend. I loved him. He loved me. We were good friends, and we spent time together. He loved Jesus just as much as I did. And one day he told me what it was like to live life in his shoes. And that conversation changed me. It changed me because now I was actually in close proximity to a situation that I had never been close to. For the first time, I was hearing someone vocalize something to me that I had never actually experienced myself. Brian Loritz, he he says it this way, proximity breeds empathy, but distance breeds suspicion. That means by nature, the things that you are closest to, you naturally have more empathy for them. But the things that are more distant from you, whatever those are, you have a tendency to have more suspicion for them. And I, for the first time, had empathy for somebody that was drastically different than me. Another one of my 
friends this past week, a friend of mine in Raleigh who's an African-American guy. He was out with his daughter. He was doing a little daddy-daughter date. He's about my age. He had a daughter that's about eight years old or so. And they're out uh, doing their own thing, having a good time. Altercation happens. Something goes on around them. Somebody gets angry at them. There's another gentleman. He's a white gentleman. He's got his daughter who's about the same age. And he's looking at him face-to-face in close proximity. And he calls him to his face in front of his child an effing inward. This week. This week. And this guy, my friend, he's a believer. He, he, he loves Jesus. He's standing there holding the hand of his eight-year-old daughter, not knowing what to do, recognizing that that is completely unjust, recognizing that his daughter for the rest of her life will never forget this moment. And rather than retaliate and rather than be angry at him and do something physically or verbally uh, off or wrong in the moment, he, he takes the high road and walks away. And here's the reality. It not only affected the little girl who was a minority, it affected the man and his little girl. For the rest of her life, she will remember that her dad, that's how her dad treats people that are different than him. Ingraining in her that that's the way that you should treat people that are different than you. What we're trying to do as a church, to be a multi-ethnic church, is trying to look like heaven and look like the kingdom and create proximity together where I can't throw stones at you anymore. I can't just throw out things on Facebook anymore because we're in the same church. We're in the same body. We're the same family of people together. And we got to start practicing right now what the kingdom of God is like because that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. That's what we're going to be doing. And David, he is here, and David is not okay with what he sees in his city. He's calling for a change, and he's pleading for God to make a difference. Then he says this in verse 12. He says this, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, for then I could hide from it. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Verse 20, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. David says that the oppression, it is not just on a city-wide scale. It's not just on a grander scale, but it is directly against him. And the oppressor is someone that used to be a close, familiar friend, a companion with him. They even shared worship together in God's house. And David is betrayed, he is abandoned, and he is oppressed by someone that is very close to him. can't read this without thinking about Jesus, without thinking about Christ, how he experienced the same thing, how he was betrayed by Judas, someone that was very close to him, that Jesus, with a kiss, was betrayed and was turned against for economic gain, which is injustice. And Jesus also knew it was coming, And he willingly took on the abuse and the oppression and the injustice and then was even wrongfully accused and wrongfully sentenced even though he was completely innocent and did nothing to deserve it. That's what's so unbelievable about our God is that God took on injustice for us. He took on the betrayal for us. He took on our oppression so that we could ultimately be set free from the greatest oppression and injustice of Satan's sin, hell, and the grave. And then David wraps it up and he says this 
in verse 16, he says this. But I call the God. The Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. And he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from old Selah, because they do not change and they do not fear God. Verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. It's amazing. In every one of these psalms of lament, in each one of these situations, we hear the psalmist offering a plea and a cry to God about what's happening around them. And then the psalmist always gets to a point where there's a conjunction and he says, but I will hope in the Lord, yet I will praise the name of the Lord regardless of what is happening to me. In his fury, in his anger, in his indignation, he anchors his hope in God. He calls out to God and puts it in God's hands. And though he's in the midst of a battle raging around him, he enters the fortress of God, the proverbial fortress of God, and recognizes that God is ultimately going to win and conquer the adversary. I love this word that David uses. He uses the word cast. In Hebrew, the the word cast, it means to throw forcibly. It means to fling It means to to throw it. And David uses that word intentionally. He says, cast your burden on the Lord. He says, give it to God, throw it to him, and he will sustain you. It gives me the imagery of of a cast net. I'm a fisherman. I've told you, I love to fish. You give me a bucket and a cast net on an island, I'll be happy all day long. Come and pick me back up at dusk. David, he he says, cast it. It's like a, a cast net. I've got an eight foot cast net. It's I'm about seven feet tall, and so the cast net is just a little bit taller than me. And you grab the cast net halfway and put it over your shoulder. You grab a a, a few of the weights. You put one of them in your mouth, which is the best part because it it, uh, tastes like salt water. You grab the other one, and then when you see the fish, when you see the minis, you, you fling it. You fling it, you turn, and you throw that thing hard. I think I've got about 35 feet on my cast net. I think I could get it about halfway back in the auditorium. I can I can throw that sucker. David uses that same word, which means we got people in the room today that are victims of oppression, literally. We have people in the room today that are struggling, that are broken, that are having a hard time, that are, that are hurting right now in the room today. We have people in our city that are facing these realities. And David says, you got to throw it to God. You got to cast it to God. You got to pick it up, whatever it is, and you got to let go of it. And you got to put it in God's hands. I said this a couple weeks ago, but trust is only trust whenever the situation is out of your hands. You can't trust while holding on to it in your own strength and your own power. Trust only becomes trust when it's out of your hands and it's in God's hands. And some of you are trying to control the situation. You're trying to fabricate the situation. You're trying to control what happens to you, what happens to others. And David says, I'm going to cast my burden on the Lord. It means today you got to give it to God. You got to give it to God. You got to put it in his hands. 
Put it in his hands. Got to give it to him and trust that he will not let the righteous be moved, which means he's holding on to you. He's holding on to you and he's, he's going to get you. He's going to get you through it. We got to be a church that loves the least of these. We got to be a church that is close to God's heart. We got to be a church that lives like God and what God's heart is. How are we going to do that? How are we going to live like that? How are we going to get the power to, to be able to do that? We can only get the power to be this kind of people who love and care for the weak when we recognize that is how God treated us. You see, the reason why Christians should be this way is because we know the gospel. And the reality is that we were at the bottom spiritually. Pressed, broken, abused, wrecked by the enemy of sin and Satan, and God ran to us. And in the gospel, Jesus disadvantaged himself so that we could be advantaged. And he became the outsider so that we could be the ultimate insider. And he fought for us when we couldn't fight for ourselves. Amen? Amen. It's the gospel. It's the good news. When you experience that, when you feel that, when you believe, when you see how God has treated you, you can't help but treat others the same way. And we will be a church like that. We will be a church that fights for people that can't fight for themselves. That hopes for people that can't hope for themselves. That feeds people that can't feed themselves. That clothes people that can't clothe themselves. Why? Because that's how God has treated us and we will treat them the same way. We will. We will. It's what God is calling us to. God didn't call us to play church. God called us to be his people, to love people, to open your wallet and to give, to open your heart and give, to open your time and give, to change a city for his glory. And that's what we're going to do. And that won't help our church grow very fast. And I'm okay with that. Because that isn't what God's called us to do either. God's called us to be a part of his kingdom and helping people meet him. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we ask today that you would grant us the ability to do this hard and difficult task to love you and then to love people as you love them. To help us be a kingdom community to demonstrate who you are and what you've done in this place. And God, may we spend all of our energy, may we spend all of our time, may we spend all of our dollars helping people know you and experience you and the love that you have for them. And let us be a kingdom community. Because of the gospel, we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.